Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, and you're catching up with short-form interview series. Uh, this might be a mild twist on the theme. It might be a, a short-form banter series with my pal Snoop Medley Med, a.k.a. intrepid Formula One porter for Racer Magazine, Racer.com, and some other good outlets. Chris Medland, how are you, my brother? How are you? I'm very good, Chief. How are you doing on that side of the pond? I'm doing okay. I got a couple cats snoring next to me in the office. Uh, I think you said you got your uh, your dog uh, keeping you warm. So this is a uh, pet-supported podcast, I believe. Well, it, it was until we mentioned it was pet-supported, and Monty has just left. He obviously <laughs> got bored of my terrible insight. So uh, that lasted all of, what, 53 seconds? Yes, exactly. Well, let me say thank you, as always, to our partners at cooper tires those fine people not only their road tires and truck tires but also those fine people who power the road to indy here justice brothers makers of amazing automotive chemicals and lubricants ones i've used in motor racing since 1986 not a joke and then finally purveyors chris of some pretty fun motor racing memorabilia that being torontomotorsports.com so let's say a big thanks to them and then i have one overriding overarching question for you what the hell is going on in your series man i thought we owned silly season stuff over here in indycar but uh last couple of weeks what the hell's going on in your series dude what the hell's going on in your series <laughs> like this is don't come at me with that you're just as crazy as we are uh i mean most of this is intertwined with your series anyway yeah a weird thing right i mean it's been a long time since there was this much uh interconnectedness i don't know how much of it's going to pan out but uh admittedly my silly season kicked off as we've never seen before at round one legitimately i was seeing and having folks report back to me seeing free agent driver of considerable success wandering into whether it was a motor coach or a hospitality area, uh, hopefully, or as they thought in secrecy, to talk about this and that. I mean, truly, mate, this kicked off February 24th through 27th on the streets of St. Petersburg in Florida, and I've been writing about this ad nauseum, not necessarily because I'm wanting to keep cranking out these silly season pieces. They get a bit arduous after a while, it's not real complaining. I'm just saying normally you get a couple, things settle down, we move into the next season. It's actually continuing to ramp up. I've got another edition ready to file here on racer.com. But what interests me most is to talk about what's going on in your world, not just the car related aspects that are involved, but we got a little bit of clarity, right, with Piastri's future finally. But Formula One silly season Am I wrong in saying I can't recall or you might not recall one being as this filled with drama and intrigue in a couple of years at least? Yeah, I think it, it mainly does resolve, revolve around that Piastri situation and McLaren and Alpine because before that it was um, not expected to kick off quite in the way it did. I still had an inkling that Fernando Alonso could move and could go to Aston Martin. It just felt very Alonso to do. Um, but then... The signs had been that Vettel was going to stay put and and continue the way Seb had been speaking. So I then started to write that off. And then 
it just moves so quick. I mean, we tried to take a break in the summer and you couldn't do it really because obviously uh, Alonso's move got confirmed and then that opened the door for the whole Piastri fiasco or the Piasco. Uh, hey, to, look to at that. Really kick Hashtag off. Piasco. <laughs> but from that, it was, um, I mean, it was kind of fun to follow. But yeah, we haven't had a proper uh, tug of war over a driver and legality of a contract kind of dispute in Formula One. Uh, since Jensen Button with Williams and BAR back in the mid 2000s, so um, we're talking sort of like twice in t- over 20 years, and that's what kind of made it really exciting because then it created hypothetical situations. I mean, I'm pretty sure McLaren they knew what they were doing from their point of view. They were very confident that they were getting Piastri, but until you're told it's done, you probably have to just keep a tiny eye on everything else. Uh, as Alpine were doing. So you've then got multiple drivers just waiting for confirmation of which seats are available, which ones aren't, and then the knock-on effects of if anyone goes after those drivers. So it kind of really stirred the pot even outside of the immediate kind of realms of McLaren and Alpine. Uh, and I think that's kind of how we ended then up with the point we've got with Colton and Alpha Tauri and Red Bull because it, that was like a knock-on effect of what Alpine might do and who they might go for. So, uh, yeah, it kind of... It moved really quick, and we, we were just copying you guys, to be fair, because you had the Palau, <laughs> Ganassi, McLaren set up, um, and you've outdone us there, to be fair, because that one's still dragging on, isn't it? So, you know, we, our CRB just kind of boringly announced everything, and now we've got certainty over where Piastri's going. It should still be a ongoing trend, like like you've still got with Palau, but, um, yeah, it's it's been it's been right up there as one of the most... Uh, remarkable ones just just from even deals you thought were done stuff that you thought was um, cemented for next year like Gasly getting announced and confirmed at AlphaTauri and now every chance he's in an Alpine next year it's great bizarre should mention in terms of understanding who may or may not be available based on their contracts I would assume Chris and I think you'd support me in in this that the majority of contracts be it IndyCar, NASCAR, F1, wherever, major top-tier series, most of those contracts between a team and driver prohibit the driver or their manager from putting that contract in front of others. Uh, There's, just as most folks don't divulge how much money they make to one another, uh, whether there's a contractual uh, limitation in a driver or manager not being able to take the contract they have with their current team and place that in front of others to look at um, if they're thinking about going somewhere else. Those things do happen, though. Uh, I'm assuming that McLaren had a pretty good look. Uh, McLaren's lawyers most likely had a pretty good look at uh, what Piastri was or was not obligated uh, to Alpine for and decided that, yes, there was something actionable here. Not asking you to confirm that, obviously, but just wanted to share with folks the, hey, how did we get here? Is there true confusion over who has a valid contract and who doesn't? It's very rare for a team to enter into a contract with a driver without having a pretty clear understanding, even if they'd never admit it, they might have seen paperwork to lead them in a direction as to whether they should or should not sign that driver, basically basically because of the potential legal um, uh, legal implications. Would that be a, a fair thing to say? 
Oh, yeah, it'd be a very fair thing to say, because I understand that McLaren and Piastri actually signed their first deal back in early June. Uh, but that was with like the intention of uh, this final deal being done and kind of had the caveat that, well, if he's got something that is legally binding with Alpine, then obviously we can't move forward from here. And then in early July, they were certain that he didn't have something legally binding with Alpine and therefore he signed the deal that um, has now been made public. So it was kind of, you know, the first steps were taken even earlier. And I think it's partly because you can't be accused of disclosing the terms of a contract if you don't have a contract. And that's where it turned out Piastri was at and Mark Webber was, as his manager, was rightly um, sort of shopping around because they were fed up of being um, played, well, not played, but just made to wait by Alpine and and not taken seriously. Uh, And a promise from, I think it was November, but certainly late last year, that they'd put a contract in front of him for the outlined all the steps and how he's going to end up in an F1 seat uh, from 2023 onwards with Alpine. Um, they were told that, that would come within 10 days from uh, Lauren Rossi, the CEO. And three, four months later, they were still waiting for it. Uh, then it was near the start of the F1 season. So they had to rush through uh, essentially not even all the right paperwork, but enough to make the FIA think it was the right paperwork to make sure he got a super license for this year. Uh, and it was just really basic terms for his reserve driver role. So Piastri actually like, acted almost like in good faith with Alpine, and so did Weber. For so long, they kept going and doing what they needed to do, waiting and waiting and waiting to finally get given this contract that outlined his future. And it just wasn't forthcoming. And when it finally was, out of nowhere, it, it said that he was meant to be in a Williams for two years, or potentially for two years, and then to Alpine. And they didn't see that as good for his career, and it hadn't been agreed to to be the next step so that was kind of like the final straw and uh, yeah that because he then hadn't signed the contract there was nothing that they even needed to show McLaren really they could just say we don't have one we've never signed one so you don't need to worry and I assume that's why there was that one month period of uncertainty um, where McLaren were like okay we'll take you if you can prove that they had to wait for uh, Piastri and his management to find a way of proving that um like safely and securely and once that was done you know deal was signed uh and off the back of that i must say like you know, uh, there's times i've maybe questioned decisions made by um mclaren or the way um, they've acted in certain areas but you've got to take your hat off to how tough it must have been for both mclaren and uh piastri and his sort of team to stay quiet throughout august when they're being accused of lack of integrity and being painted as these villains that have you know, shafted Daniel Ricciardo and stolen or snatched this other driver. Uh, and, you know, I even complained about Mark Webber. I thought he misinformed or mismanaged Piastri by not waiting for Alonso's future to be resolved before signing something elsewhere. But then when you actually see the detail, you realise, no, not at all. They were, look- they were all looking out for themselves, but in a fair way. Uh, and then they didn't come out and defend themselves at the time. They let it play out. Uh, and they let the decision be made officially by the FIA CRB. And then they can turn around and be like, you see, now it makes sense, right? One area, too, which through your reporting, Chris, helped me to I guess, have greater sympathy for Alpine's new team principal, Otmar Safnauer, him having to inherit the actions, or, or better stated, inaction. Uh, of mm. predecessors and higher ups within the organization, that has to be something where, in speaking to Otmar in the uh, in the paddock, be it last weekend or, or recent weekends, 
trying to clean up someone else's mess, trying to do what is in the best interest of the team, that has to be hard when we're talking about something that you are not the author of. Would I also be unfair in saying, Chris, that it seemed like some of the comments coming from Otmar about uh, young Mr. Piastri and his behavior and handling of things as such might've been a little bit of an overreach. It's, it's a weird place to be where he's paid to have Alpine's best interest and in heart to fight for Alpine's best of everything and holding on to uh, uh, this young driver they helped develop would certainly fall into that category uh, of uh, duty bound work on his behalf just a little bit of a weird thing yeah of this not being his mess but maybe it felt like he was overreaching and overstating some things a little bit where did you find uh otmar to be in the middle of all this yeah it was quite interesting actually we had a, a press conference on saturday morning in uh Zandvoort, so you know only a few days ago and uh during that otmar was you know target number one essentially he was there you could ask questions that um kind of picked holes in things he'd said before or the way that Alpine had managed situations, but you had to acknowledge, and he did mention it at some point, that it, you know, it all started off long before he was there. And I had someone say, um, you know, how's he going to survive this? He can't look, you know, look stupid. It looks like he's been either lying or um, unfairly criticizing people and, and shifting blame elsewhere when he shouldn't be. But then you think, well, actually, all he's got to do is keep his bosses happy. That's how he keeps his job. And those bosses are the ones that made the wrong calls or, or, as you say, mismanaged the situation from the start. The first broken promise came from Lauren Rossi uh, uh, late last year. So if Otmar then makes himself out to be the villain and the guy that's been getting things wrong, in, in the court of public opinion, it might not look good for Otmar, but that might go down very, very well with within Alpine and their higher-ups. So he might actually be being very, very smart for his own future and to be able to stay in that job and and kind of try and improve things moving forward. And let's be fair, like Otmar hasn't been there that long. And why, while sometimes I think he's a bit um, disingenuous with some of his answers, or he could be a bit, bit smarter with them um, and a bit more uh, honest in the sense that he knows what other people know and still will give you an answer. You know, there's not, is not the whole truth, um, but he's not been there long enough to really influence too much of that team. And what he did with Force India and the way he influenced that team getting the most out of itself was very good. So he needs time to do the same at Alpine. So in a sense, he's you know kind of protecting his position right now, even if it doesn't make him look good, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's kind of how I'm I'm now reading it. And I still think he um, could, could be smarter with the way he answers things. And I really think he should have backtracked and almost apologized to Piastri for the uh, lack of integrity comment that he made and i gave him the chance to do that and he didn't do that so i, I thought that was a bit poor um but yeah he it, like you say he was dropped into the middle of a a big old mess and told to clean it up and not only clean it up but also you know take some responsibility for it if he could as well hmm you know there's another aspect in your world that crosses over to mine that being our friends at andretti autosport slash andretti global Great desire, as we've heard, for them to be in Formula One. Uh, we broke that story, heck, I think August of last year, right, about uh, Andretti's efforts to get into F1 uh, through buying a team. That ultimately went nowhere. Then we've had the, okay, we have found commercial backing to create a team. Will any of us al anyone allow us in? We know those parts. I'd love to get your, your most 
recent thoughts, whatever the most up-to-date thoughts are on this. Do we call it a saga? It feels <laughs> like a saga, be, not just because of the Andretti constantly trying to get there, saying a lot now these days, saying very little. That probably came from a lot of advisement. But the voices, whether it's Stefano Domenicali, uh, leader of F1, whether it's team bosses, there's a lot of folks in Formula One not on the letting in an 11th team train, uh, and a lot of folks, frankly, putting up massive, massive barriers, uh, be it in print, be it behind the scenes. Everything from this side of the pond looks like Formula One loves America, and we're going to be going there as many as three times in the future. But hey, yeah, uh, we like your country, but eh, even your driver, too, that Colton Herta guy. Uh, you didn't follow some asinine points-based system that we came up with um, correctly, and you don't have enough points to belong in Formula One. Give me your thoughts here, brother, because this is the one, I would say, unsavory side of Formula One from the average American fan's perspective. Yeah, so I, I get where some of the beef came from F1 with Andretti in the sense that um, behind closed doors there are multiple different potential teams um, with a lot of money that were saying, we want to come in. And they kind of said, well, essentially, if you want to come in, you've got to bring something that's going to really solidify the sport. And we're talking like you know, a manufacturer, a proper, you know, we know IndyCar been looking for an extra engine manufacturer, that sort of thing. Something that you feel really strengthens the core of the sport. And right now they said, we're in such a good place with 10 teams that we, we don't need to go bigger um, unless it's really a, a proper big expansion and, and the only way a manufacturer would come in. So it wasn't just to Andretti that they were saying that. But the problem was, because Andretti, as you said, went very public with the interest and the way they wanted to do it, that annoyed F1 because they said, look, you're not alone here. You're not the only ones, but you're just, you're just shouting loud. But you're the loudest, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you're, and you're making other people then criticize us for the stance that we actually have across all teams. It's not just Andretti. It's not about America. But then... They are. You can see there's also a, a willingness that you know it's a great name. It there would be added value, but it's how do they then marry that with what they kind of want to see, which is more manufacturers like an Audi that's that's come in. And there was a point not that long ago where the door seemed to crack open, where if Red Bull and Porsche partnered up, and AlphaTauri also took Porsche uh, engine badged engines, then Honda's interest recently with the success they've had might not have fully disappeared, and maybe if Andretti could convince Honda to partner with them and it kept Honda in the sport in some way, shape or form, that would really make sense for F1. So, because not only that, an extra manufacturer then kind of helps underpin not just the new team coming in, but other teams that exist. So that, there was a bit of a door opening there, but now it sounds like the, the Porsche deal might fall through and um, Red Bull could end up almost convincing Honda to stay themselves. Uh, so that might close that avenue off a bit. Uh, I think it's, been a little bit um, too abruptly pushed back by F1. I think egos got in the way. And because because there was loud shouting from Andretti, it was almost like loud shouting back from, from F1. And if they were critical of Andretti's approach, they then lowered themselves to that same approach. I don't think that was right. They should have just said, look, you know, it's interesting. We'll keep looking at it. We're, we're working behind the scenes with lots of teams. They should have just kept batting it back rather than sort of fight fire with fire, which I think was silly. On the Herta front, 
it's a very strange situation because I think most people are, very, are fully accepting that he deserves to have a chance of racing in F1, that any F1 team that wants to look, take a look at him or any other driver from IndyCar that they believe is good enough should be allowed to do that. And that the point system that is meant to be followed by drivers to get a super license doesn't work when you get below the top two in IndyCar. Like they're not given enough points for that. Um, if you finish fourth in the IndyCar Championship, which is going to be one of you know, one of the guys that are going for the title this weekend, um, you get the same amount of points as the guy that finishes fourth, guy or girl, in Formula Regional Americas, so F4 level or F3 level at best. It's, it, it's, so, it's an overlooked issue, basically, that they suddenly realise, I think, that you're not rewarding the quality of drivers that are finishing consistently in the top 10 which Colton's done, he'll have done three straight seasons, or maybe even four by the end of this year, comfortably in the top 10 of the standings, but that won't generate anywhere near enough points for a super license. So they're, they're kind of accepting that there's an error there, but the problem is if you then accept it and, and retrospectively change it, every driver in any series that feels they're good enough and not being given enough points for their results will start using that as the precedent. And then if you just create an exemption and say, well, we actually look at him and think he's good enough, so he should come in, then that literally will be every single driver that races a racing car anywhere in the world will say, or any team that wants to take anyone just because they bring backing or something. Uh, and that, that creates another headache. So essentially, the FIA is just trying to find a way that is um, going to cause the least headache possible to approve him or let him come in. Uh, but when you've got drivers that, achieved super license results and got into F1 with no issues in the likes of Alex Rossi and, and Marcus Ericsson. And you look at their results. I mean, what's Rossi? One win since 2019 and, and Marcus three wins ever. And Colton's won seven compared to the time that Marcus has won three and yet doesn't qualify. It does show that there's just a massive imbalance that needs addressing. And I think that's been the bigger issue. So um, when you get other team bosses pushing back and saying, no, we don't think an exemption should happen, that's partly because they'd have gone after him too or gone after similar drivers if they'd known that they could have you know, got the rules changed or bent. Um, or they've been investing in young drivers who have spent a lot of their own money to go through the ladder in Europe, thinking of Jack Crawford's and your Logan Sargent's, yeah. who've made big sacrifices to race here all the way up and had to get back in to do that. Then then they're suddenly going, well, that was wasted money. Like, And you're going to tell these young kids that, Actually, you should have just done whatever you wanted and then bent the rules at the end. So it's kind of a rock and a hard place situation. It's not anything against Colton or IndyCar. It's just if we give this exemption, what could the knock-on effect be? And that's why it's not been so quick in, in, in happening. couple things just to, to share on that. I've had to stop following this for the most part on social media <clears throat> because I just want to scream at – and it, there's a, a seemingly a, a – select group who are the most vocal and i refer to them as the oh hey i learned formula one existed when i happened upon drive to survive and every person who now counts themselves as formula one's foremost expert of all things based on their three to four years of knowing it existed uh seemingly get behind the golden rope uh, approach to f1 oh very exclusive oh sorry hey you've got to qualify to have the possibility to drive in our series and earn a super license and ah ah, ah. oh mr herda you and your 32 points sorry you don't have the 40 nope need to stay behind the golden rope there with all the other plebeians um 
one of the great and most empowering things in life <laughs> is admitting when you're wrong and admitting when you made a mistake and correcting it. It's a really powerful thing. So that's a generalism. What's come to mind here is I understand the exception part and that does make sense. Okay. You open up that door, every driver in the world who has three, <laughs> three super license points will be saying, well, Hey, if, if only I had the other 37, I'd be an F1, right? So just give me a super license. So I get that being able to say, Hey, you know what the structure came up with in the formula formula regional Americas example that you gave is the one that everybody's been citing the ability to say, Hey, you know what? We came up with this points-based awarding structure. And when it comes to IndyCar and who knows, maybe other series as well, we haven't given enough or maybe we've given too many points. Let's take a look back and do a bit of a retroactive cleanup. Okay. So we can see here, if I'm, I'm staring at F1's current list right now in the standings hey nicholas latifi sweetheart of guy albon stroll uh there are a few more as well that i can say without a doubt uh, i have no question as to whether colton would outrun damn near immediately given some time some proper testing and really getting stuck in he has the kind of talent as McLaren CEO Zach Brown has reaffirmed over and over again, this is not some, hey, he's pretty good in IndyCar. Gee, could he scrape in? This guy is phenomenal. Does he have the talent, Chris, to become a future Formula One world champion? I think that might be a stretch. He'd have to prove that to us. But look, I'm staring at Carlos Sainz. He's certainly had many opportunities to win a championship. That's never happened. Run down the list. There are a lot of young drivers who we look at in F1 and say, we think you are special, and we think you have amazing things ahead of you, but we're still waiting for you to show that to us. Herta falls into that same space of skill and potential. Through this points-based awarding system, IndyCar, as we well know, has been put in a really bizarre, low-regard place when it comes to, as you mentioned, anyone who finishes outside of the top two. I love the idea, although I'm sure it'll never happen, of the FIA slash F1 saying, hey, you know what? We're not going to give you an exemption uh, or anyone an exemption, but we will take a look back over the last few years and ask ourselves, did we get this right? And if we feel that we did not, then we're going to clean up the past. And that may enable, if they were to do that, Chris, to say to a number of drivers, whatever number that may be, you qualify for a super license. Even if that were to happen, there's the part that I don't see discussed very often, which is say that were to happen. Say 10 drivers just became eligible for super licenses doesn't mean 10 drivers are going to be on the F1 grid next year, my friend. <laughs> Being eligible and having an open race seat and a team that's interested in you and the ability for you to be there through either merit or bringing of vast sums of sponsorship, those are all the really big hurdles to clear, far bigger than getting a super license. So just having one doesn't mean you're going to be on the grid, 
But is it too crazy of me to say, you know what? Do we keep sticking to this go- stupid golden rope? Nope. Sorry, you and maybe others, uh, because of some asinine point system created by human beings, right? Arbitrary numbers could have been 30, could have been 50. This is a made up number. Do we stick to that? Like, oh my God, that's the end all be all of who we are. Or do folks press for sanity to be applied here to how it's been done the last couple of years and maybe revise it going forward? I'm so glad you brought up the point of just because you say someone qualifies doesn't put them on the F1 grid. There's an, an argument that's been doing my head in that's been going around that people look at it as you're trying to bend the rules or change the rules to get her to in. And it's like, no, it's the acknowledgement that right now the rules exclude a group of very good drivers in IndyCar from being considered for an F1 seat by F1 teams that want to consider them. So all you're trying to do is remove a roadblock, not proactively make something happen, um, is, is how I prefer to look at it. And I think from what all team bosses have said too, this is something again where I noticed I think Connor and Alex uh, Rossi replied to the uh, tweet putting out the story I did at the weekend about uh, Vassar and Steiner saying, I don't think there should be an exemption for Herter. They shouldn't change the rules retrospectively. But both Vasser and Steiner said, uh, and they were supported by Seidel on this as well, sat next to them, that the FIA should look at the waiting for IndyCar and that they believe IndyCar drivers are plenty good enough, um, certainly ones that have been winning races, to be racing in F1. So they're like in full, full support of moving forward, looking to address that issue. They were just saying, but right now you can't retrospectively say, actually, he's good enough, in he comes. That, that was their stance. I think the, the FIA could be quicker on this. If they really do want to affect decent change, they could go, right, the IndyCar season hasn't quite finished yet. We're going to change the points waiting for this year, for this current season, um, with approval, because it would have to be a, um, it'd have to have full approval from um, the fact that they would have changed a, uh, I think it would be an international sporting code regulation. I'm not quite sure where it actually sits. Um, but they would then say, okay, below second place, don't forget, IndyCar is, is one of only two championships, the other one being Formula 2, that gets the full 40 points to get your super license for the champion. No, no other championship gets that. You get 30 if you win Formula E, you get 30 if you win uh, the World Endurance Championship in Hypercar, uh, you get 25 for uh, Super Formula and, and Formula Regional for some reason. Um, so, yeah, if you want 40 points and winning a ch- title will get you it, only IndyCar and Formula 2 do that. But where Formula 2 differs is that gets you 40 points for second and third as well, 30 points for fourth. In IndyCar, you get 30 points for second. You're down to 20, half the points needed for third. And from third onwards, I think they could almost maybe increase third to 25. But if you went from fourth onwards, where it's 10 points and less, you could double it. And it's still not going to have a huge impact. It's not going to give Colton a super license. But it is going to reflect a little bit more the strength of that field and level of talent throughout that field. This is a field with XF1 driver Roman Grosjean in an Andretti in 12th in the championship. Getting destroyed so by energy. Colton Herta, destroyed by yeah. Alexander Rossi. And not getting any super license points at all because he, he's just not finished top 10. But drivers that are finishing top 10 deserve better rewards. Um, if you did that, someone asked me about it earlier today, and I, it, this is how I came up with this maths. So Colton would then end up, if he finishes eighth as he currently sits, with uh, 34 points on his super license, needing another six. But there would be six rounds of the F1 season after the IndyCar season finishes, where if he did every FP1 and got one point for every FP1, as that as that pays out, 
he'd hit 40. So you're kind of opening the door to say, go on then, c- come and drive an F1 car in practice sessions for the team that wants to sign you. And assuming you um, you complete those practice sessions cleanly, you're going to get your super license. To me, that makes sense as a compromise way of opening the door to Colton. If Red Bull want him enough, that's your path to get him in. Uh, it also rewards slightly better um, drives in the top 10. And it's all done within without having to retrospectively look at things and open that kind of worms that every championship says, well, we had a really strong field that year, so you should give us more points for that year. Um, that's That's how I would see it working right now uh, and i think it's i don't know if the fia are looking into doing it that way but i think it's their perhaps um least uh, troublesome way of doing it and opening the door uh, and again as you just said that doesn't just open it to colton or put colton in right now it just removes a barrier that allows teams to look at drivers like colton or others from indycar uh, and consider if they think they're good enough or not and if they do consider it then up to the f1 team to risk putting them in what do we close on this chris this is definitely maybe more of a IndyCar side of things, but there are some levels that impact your world. Alex Pillow, IndyCar champion last year, earner of super license. Uh, between Pillow and Herta, if I had to pick, if I was an F1 team principal, good Lord, please don't ever make that happen. I'd destroy the sport. I would go with Herta all day. <laughs> Alex would be... Very good. Not scary, though. I've only seen Alex deliver one, maybe two drives in his now three-year-long IndyCar career that I would say were, holy crap, (laughs) hold on to something because he is about to knock you over with the force of that performance. Herta, I don't know, 10 times at least, Uh, seemingly every win all of his seven wins have had some sort of oh my god what did you do type thing that mercurial just crazy that's formula one right that's what formula one is about not who is extremely fast consistent but eh, not super threatening versus buckle in this is going to be something you remember that's who Herta happens to be. Nonetheless, Pelot's the one with the super license. Pelot's the one who is intermingled with McLaren Racing. This lawsuit that's going on between Alex, Alex's business, Alpa Racing, and Chip Ganassi Racing, his current team. This is still a little bit of a, a crazy thing for me to consider, Chris. We have the situation where we go back to what we spoke about earlier in the conversation about teams getting a look at contracts. Uh, I don't remember which reporter it wasn't me, but Zach Brown, McLaren CEO, gave them some sort of quote, paraphrasing that, uh, hey, I'd never seen his, his contract. I had no idea if he was signed to, McLaren, uh, to Ganassi, etc. If I had to take a lie detector test <laughs> and answer whether I thought that Uh, statement was filled with truthiness or lack of truthiness uh i'd err on the latter i don't believe that for a moment uh that is uh, you would not be doing a very good job of being a team principal if you truly just blindly sign someone because they said they thought they could drive for you nonetheless we do have the scenario chris where while the piastri thing was still up in the air we did you did have and others did have zach mentioned polo is one 
among many drivers, uh, that would be considered an option, a plan B potentially. At least from your end, did you ever think Pillow was going to be a real option for that second McLaren seat alongside Lando Norris? I didn't, but I got to believe Pillow felt there was something real there, maybe even if the rest of us didn't necessarily see how that would work out in his favor in the end. No, I didn't. Uh, I think it showed that it was, yeah, and with the greatest respect to Alex, um, I just think it showed it was a backup if Oscar didn't happen and showed how unlikely it was that they weren't going to get Oscar, that that, that was the fallback. If they were like, oh, we'll be left without a driver. And he was one of three, wasn't he? He also mentioned Colton and Pato and obviously knows the super license issues that exist. So um, that potentially suggests that Red Bull's interest was already there or that these discussions with the FIA had already happened that talked about seeing if there were going to be exemptions possible. But he did mention that they were three of, you know, a wider list that he might look at. I just think it showed the certainty that McLaren had that they were getting Piastri that, you know, in in a strange scenario where they didn't get in, they're like, okay, well, we've got to, we've got to back up if we have to. But again, like you said, if you're really excited about someone, you'd be putting them in anyway. He'd have been signing Pelot to be, an F1 driver, not to be his IndyCar driver, if he was that excited about him. So, um, I uh, yeah, I, I don't think it was ever really realistic. And I, 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 there's a lot of drivers I'd love to see make the crossover. And I think because of what Pelot's done in such a short space of time, I can understand how and why he would excite some people. Um, but I'm with you. I think Hertz is a better fit as well for the Red Bull brand and the AlphaTauri brand because they kind of love to take a chance on someone that might sink, might swim. Um, because if they do swim, then they're going to have, they're going to, you know, put them into a top tier seat with the Red Bull team. But if they don't, then that's what AlphaTauri exists for is to find out. Uh, and I think that's another reason why this is coming together now, because Pierre Gasly's obviously had his chance and as good as he is, they know everything they need to know about Pierre Gasly. And if they're not got a space for him right now, he's not really uh, the right type of driver that they need in that team if they want to be looking to the future. So, um, yeah, that, that's what makes Herter, I think, the much better fit. Last quick thing. In reading what you done wrote and reading some of the uh, the quotes and such, we know that the next Formula One round could, could be a place where a decision is made as to whether uh, any kind of exception would be made for Colton. You've obviously outlined some of the, hey, if he ends the championship in this place this year and does some other things, you know, there's not an impossible pathway to getting to those 40 points, but are you sharing in my belief that there will be no super license provided whenever whatever final uh, decisions are made here as early as Monza? Uh, are you thinking the same that I'm thinking that uh, a, a special way in compared to the established way into F1, uh, that's probably going to be off the list for Colton? Yeah, I'd say so. I I was asked about it uh, actually in the race of the mailbag for this week where someone said, how would you rate his chances? And and I kind of went 50-50 at best. I think the fact that Red Bull have pushed this hard um, and gone down this route suggests that they um, believe there's a chance and they're not going to have waste, been wasting their time. But at the same time, the fact that it's now public and that Helmut Marco was willing to say it um, and the way it came out over the last couple of weeks also suggests that maybe they wanted a bit of pressure put on the FIA and Formula One to see how big it could be or how um, 
good it could be for the sport to have an American driver coming in that people were excited about. And that's also suggests that then they weren't that confident in other arguments. So, um, yeah, I kind of, if I wouldn't put big money on it right now, uh, if I'm honest, but that doesn't mean that it's not exciting to see that interest there. And who knows, um, if, you know, Cotton did move closer this year to Formula One just by doing the McLaren testing deal. So whether that continues next year because Red Bull don't come in for him or whether Red Bull do a deal where he's going to do some FP1s and is, becomes part of the Red Bull sort of product academy and does well in IndyCar next year, then it could well be that 2024 we're looking at him as an F1 driver. Whatever comes of this right now, I don't think it's his only shot to get onto the grid and... Uh, I still see it as a move closer um, because of the way the interest has been so firm and now public. So um, they're not bad things for Colton, even if it doesn't happen right now. Yeah, and there's a couple of little things here, just notes to throw in before we say farewell. I don't know if we've ever mentioned this uh, in print or podcast or otherwise. I know last year when I was chasing this uh, Andretti to F1 story, there was a Colton Herta component to it as well. Uh, was asked to leave the Colton part out, and you and I communicated on, on all this stuff behind the scenes, so I'm not sharing anything that you and I hadn't already covered off back then, but you were aware that there were requests to leave Colton's name out of things. It was still a bit of a, a touchy subject back then, again, all in light of the super license point issue, and... Uh, left the part out that I'd heard on pretty good account that Stefano Domenicali was actually feeling sympathetic. I don't know if sympathetic would have turned into full action, but I'd at least heard uh, and, and made you aware around this time last year, Chris, that within the FIA slash F1, there seemed to be some interest. Was that tied 100% to the growing wave of popularity of F1 in America, maybe. Again, I, I can't tell you the motivations, but I had at least heard that, all right, you know, having Colton, young young American, someone who's done training in junior open wheel in Europe, certainly fast, certainly capable. This is the right guy if we're going to get an American to F1. And yeah, not at the 40-point level, but not too far away. Plus, he's demonstrated uh, he's more than uh, talented enough to be on the grid there. There just seemed to be some sympathy and maybe the possibility of some help in bridging that gap. We've now had that very same guy <laughs> pretty clearly say, yeah, <laughs> help ain't going to be forthcoming, y'all. So there's that. Um, also need to add that I believe Colton's IndyCar contract runs through 2023. So if things end up where he needs to spend another year in IndyCar, by no means the worst thing. That's already lined up with uh, expectations for him to be back in the number 26 Honda with Andretti. Also know that within his current contract, there is the out clause. If he does happen to get a Formula One opportunity and wants to leave for it, he does have that ability. This season, though, Chris, this has not been the easiest for Andretti Autosport. And once again, for every person who simply looks at uh, the, the season's results and say, oh, well, see, Colton Herta, he's not a very good driver. Uh, he's currently 
not even capable of being in the championship hunt and write all of the things all the things that folks might say having no clue what they're talking about. The team as a whole has been a bit of a train wreck this year. Two wins from 16 rounds. Colton has one. Rossi has the other. Uh, Colton has worked his way forward to eighth in the championship. Damn near impossible for him. It's completely impossible for him to go any higher right now, um, even with the season finale this weekend. But this has been a down year for Andretti Autosport. The thing that I, I have in the back of my head, Chris, is if there's a launching point that I think would be best for Colton, uh, even on a reputation standpoint, it would be to either head to F1 next year, if that was possible, or embark upon a season of whatever it is that he needed to do at every F1 round, do whatever number of Fridays that he can, whatever testing of previous cars that he can, because I'm not 100% sure Andretti Autosport's going to be much stronger or any better next year, knowing that they're losing Rossi and just the overall talent across the team is filled with young drivers and experienced drivers. He'll be the only winner on that team if he returns next year. Every other driver, again, uh, two sophomores, right? Two rookies right now will become sophomores. And our man Romain Grosjean, who's just had a brutal uh, sophomore year in IndyCar, just saying out loud, like him doing another year and him doing well and maybe finishing higher up in the championship, possible. I just don't know how likely that would be based on some of the changes that are coming and the struggles they're facing against bigger teams, or I shouldn't say bigger, but higher performing teams like Air McLaren SP, Chip Ganassi Racing, and Team Penske. So even that seems like a little bit of a conundrum, my friend. What's best for Colton next year? If we think F1's on the horizon, I almost wonder if it'd be better for him to embark on that next year, even if it's not a race seat. Um, if that were to happen, where would uh, Red Bull stick him, do you think? DTM? Uh, I don't know. What do we do? Yeah, that's the killer. I, someone asked me that as well on the mailbag about, you know, can you see him? One, they said, can you see him going to Ganassi? And I was like, no, but that would be a much better place for him to be to try and get the points he'd want. But the other one was, or oh, maybe go to F2. And I'm like, it makes no sense for a driver who's a, a proven winner in IndyCar to go to Formula 2 trying to get super license points. That completely ruins like any career kind of momentum. But also, just because they're good enough doesn't mean they're going to succeed in F1. That also doesn't mean they'd succeed in F2. It's a very unique championship. You'd have to be able to get, again, one of the best seats to be able to challenge at the sharp end. There's only a few teams that really can regularly challenge at the sharp end in Formula 2 for the same reasons that IndyCar has... Um, a hierarchy of teams and you have um, sort of like independent entrants further down that are that are struggling for big results but it still gets you on the grid um, that that exists in Formula 2 as well so like you say I think it's not a given that being at Andretti is the best thing for him if he's worried about super license points but it is something that people should look at as the context of of his performances this year with the fact that he's the lead Andretti driver in the championship uh, and that is in a sense all he can do. We talk about it from F1 as you know the first person you need to beat is your teammate because they have the same equipment. Same thing with IndyCar, just on, okay on a on a reduced level, but the same point still stands um, when the top six are all either Penske or Ganassi drivers. So um, I, I think there's not a clear stepping stone for him next, realistically, other than Andretti being better next year, um, or if. Red Bull then want to yeah give him the the FP1 runs which they could do he can do up to 10 FP1s 
he has to complete 100 kilometers in that session and not infringe to the to the extent that he'd get a penalty point on his license so as long as he's clean in the session and he gets 100 kilometers under his belt you get a, a super license point so you can only do that up to 10 to stop any driver just doing that for 40 consecutive races to get a super license and that that's the sort of thing you could see red bull alpha Tari doing if they were certain that they wanted them in uh, and they were definitely going to make it happen then based on the points he would end this season on which i believe is still going to be 32 essentially um let's let's average it out and say he's going to be in the same position next year and he's going to finish eighth ninth or tenth in the championship um and he stays on about 32 points then there you go you need eight fp1 next year and i think that would be the best way to go don't rock the boat at andretti like do what he does well there and get as good results as he's able to um and then chase the extra points from the fp1 runs um, because that's also going to be the best experience you can get. It would be experience of F1 machinery, current F1 machinery, on an actual F1 re- race weekend, on current F1 tracks. It would be like a, an easing into it. And it's it's something that Valtteri Bottas did, actually. He did Formula 3 and won that title. And then Williams ran him in 15 FP1s when he was there reserved the next year. So he didn't do any racing. He just did that. And it set him up pretty well for when he came in as a rookie. So if you if you take that approach... I think it could stand him in the best stead possible to make the step up in 24 if it's going to go that way. You just made us a heck of a bunch smarter. Snoop Medley, Med, appreciate <laughs> you taking some time. Uh, as always, brother, appreciate you. And oh, We'll buckle in for some more because the silly season is not over. I'm pretty sure we said this was going to be short and full of banter, and I feel like it was neither, boss. I will admit to an epic failure here, uh, for sure. Um, I was I was getting confused towards the end, but you you cleaned it up and and helped me help my my brain get a little bit smarter. So yeah, well hey, uh, boy, I better go finish my IndyCar silly season piece. I think it's legitimately number six of the year. Might be number seven. Wow. I have no idea. Um, the one well, there's a lot of tidbits in there. One of them. So this whole fake press release that McLaren put out with real quotes about Felix Rosenquist being signed, which we confirmed was indeed uh, not full of truthiness, have heard from multiple sources, and these are, again, real sources, people who know, that the one option that McLaren Racing holds on Felix that is strictly for IndyCar no Formula E component whatsoever. That team-based option they can take up on Felix to keep him in the number seven Chevy he's currently driving, that they're suing part of the lawsuit uh, with Ganassi to potentially gain the services of Alex Pelot, have learned that the option there, my brother, that expires September 30th. Once the day of September 30th is done, Felix Rosenquist becomes a true free agent. Question here, and it's a rhetorical one. I don't know if I can answer it in uh, the silly season piece I'm doing, but I've heard the ongoing mediation might not be done anytime soon, might end up leading to going to federal court to have this hashed out over the offseason months, I believe it might take, who knows. That could very well, Chris, take things past September 30th. 
Felix mm. has always been presented as the fallback position if they don't get Pelot. Strange thing for a driver to be in, right? I'm going to just sit around and wait to see if you want, if you can replace me. Uh, I believe there's been a feeling of, well, McLaren is really the only destination for Felix. That would have been true a year ago, brother. Nobody was wanting Felix at the end of 2021. He has certainly changed that. There are teams that would love to hire him tomorrow. I know that because I've spoken with them. We could be in an interesting place, just silly season nonsense going on, at least over here, where if the Polo legal stuff goes beyond September 30, McLaren could both lose Rosenquist and, depending on how things end up with Polo, not get Polo and have to start the process of finding a driver to fill that number seven Chevy. I'm confident there'd be plenty who'd want to drive it, right? It's an excellent car, excellent team. But how crazy would it be, brother, to think would have gone through months and months of all this drama and whatnot, however much money will have been spent on lawyers. And I'm told the lawyers representing Polo, who very few of us believe Polo is the one actually paying for all of it, you could not find a law firm in the United States that charges more per hour than that law firm. <laughs> been told that by an Indi- a friend who's both a lawyer and an IndyCar fan saying, truly, th- these, this is the most elite law firm you can hire. No one is more expensive. So vast sums are being spent on this. What a crazy scenario to think of potentially waking up, uh, who knows, October 1st um, and finding out that, Felix Rosenquist is now driving for a rival and the possibility of Polo not being uh, that coveted driver that they get into the Air McLaren SP team and to have him involved in whatever potential way uh, in F1 testing or otherwise. So did we all go through this, Chris, for however many months to have it end up kind of where it started, but with the driver who's in the car right now saying, to heck with you, I'm going someplace where I'm truly wanted. My brain is, is just twisted into a pretzel right about now. It's great, isn't it? I mean, it's it's the idea then that right now McLaren, certainly on the F1 side, look pretty smart that they essentially caught Alpine with their pants down and, and you know, they didn't have a contract and they took one of the hottest yep. kind of um, talents that was waiting and got them in their F1 seat. And then for almost a reverse to happen to them and, and the, a contractual stipulation catches them out um would be pretty ironic but uh knowing how quickly they move and that what zach's done already both when trying to get alex but in getting oscar as well i imagine there's already been some kind of feelers put out or or there might even be stuff that's semi-in-motion to cover their backs in case the worst happens um i wouldn't know actually what that would be and who knows maybe you turn around to daniel ricardo and say all right, we've paid you for the F1 seat, but you can do some IndyCar road courses if you want, just so it looks fun. I don't know. but I also um, wonder if things continue to drag on through September, if somewhere around September 29th or even on the date of September 30, uh, they don't decide, you know what, uh, we're going to take up that option on you, Felix, because they have he and Pato have the best, some of the best chemistry I've ever seen between teammates. Uh, they are running together for the majority of the season, right? Uh, I would not rate Felix above Pato, 
but they really do make an incredibly strong duo. And then you have the incoming Alexander Rossi next season. Uh, again, I do wonder if if Zach or whomever within the McLaren slash Air McLaren SP side gets towards the end of September if nothing is resolved on the Palo front and just says, you know what, Alex, we appreciate you. Um, we're going to cut bait right now, though. And uh, if you're available at the end of 23 uh, or whenever it might be, when you're truly free, <laughs> when there's no question as to whether any other team holds a, val- uh, a valid contract on your services, let's talk then. I do wonder if uh, they, they would make what I would consider to be the smartest play, and that is just keep Rosenquist in the car, maintain continuity, have two drivers who we know work well together, Rossi, who's a phenomenal driver, but can be a bit of a polarizing figure, don't know how well he's going to integrate into the team. So just from a chemistry standpoint, I wouldn't be surprised to learn at some point here later in September if this lawsuit mediation thing's still going on that uh, I wouldn't be surprised to read what I would hope would be a true press release, Chris, <laughs> saying that Rosenquist has indeed been retained for one more year. So, yeah. Lots more to go here in the IndyCar silly season. I th- there's still seats to fill and things to figure out in your side. So who knows? Maybe we'll do another one of these uh, in a month or so and see where we end up. Absolutely. I get the feeling it will not have been where we think we'll be in a month. <laughs> I'm just trying to get you signed to something, right? Uh, which team can we get you slotted into? That's all I want to know. I'm working on it. I'm working on the Alpine seat. They, uh, you know, I did, I did Formula Four testing with Skip Barber. Yep. Uh, in July, so tip that box without crashing. Um, Alpine do like a media carting championship in F1. I'm second in that, going into the final round. So, you know, if 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 a strange thing happens in Abu Dhabi, then surely they can't ignore me. Surely we can put the little accent aigu over the e in your last name uh, and make you a little more French to fit Alpine. So. Uh, I think we got that figured out as well. Snoop Medley Mad, appreciate you, brother. (sighs) Buckle in, y'all. More silly season to come.